Hey everyone, it's Matt Harmon from the Yahoo Fantasy Football Show. Are you sad there's no fantasy football going on right now? Yeah, me too. I've got good news for you though. It is fantasy baseball season right now. Join a public league, join an instant draft, or create a league with your buddies before opening day. It's Yahoo Fantasy Baseball time. Sign up for the 2024 fantasy baseball season at yahoo.com slash fantasy baseball or on the Yahoo Fantasy app. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world that's been avoiding arbitration our entire lives. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. You don't take me to court. If we can help it, uh, I would rather not go to a place where my employer tells me that I'm worth less than I believe. That is arbitration. We are not going to talk uh, about arbitration today because it's there's other more interesting baseball <laughs> topics to get into. Uh, Bo Bichette, we respect your fight and we hope you get the contract you are seeking. But that is really all I have to say on the matter. Um, Jake, it is good to be joined with you uh, again here on this Monday morning. Uh, we are going to begin the show with, well, I think, what is hopefully one final Carlos Correa uh, check-in before we say goodbye to him, before he's playing baseball, hopefully in a few weeks in the WBC. Uh, we are going to talk about some of the other moves that happened since we last spoke, including Andrew McCutcheon returning to Pittsburgh, Nelson Cruz going to be Fernando Tatis Jr.'s babysitter, Trey Mancini going to the Cubs, and Miguel Rojas getting traded from the Fight and Fish. Then later on, we're going to talk about the Tigers moving the fences in. Is that going to make them win the division? Of course not. Then we're going to tell you all about the January 15th international signings. And then finally, our email segment returns as well as a dead ball Mad Lib, courtesy of Jake Mintz. I'm so excited for that. But Jake, let's begin with one more Carlos Correa check-in because uh, over the weekend, we got a couple interesting uh, nuggets of information courtesy of an interview that Carlos Correa did with The Athletic as well as an interview that Scott Boris did with USA Today. And there was one detail that came out here in the reporting and, and just from, from both Boris and Correa that, that stood out to me and I just wanted to talk about it a little bit before we move on. So first of all, uh, I mean, when you see, here's what I'm curious about. When you saw that I wanted to talk about Carlos Correa again, were you like, oh God, can we just put this behind us? Or are you also still interested in this story? I am still interested to a point. Mm-hmm. I am interested to know the truth of what really happened here and interested to know everyone's motives mm-hmm. in what happened here. And I don't think we will actually know any of that for some years to come. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I would say I am less interested than you, but I am willing as a friend and as a podcast co-host to humor you and the listeners with one final ceremonial farewell. It's the closing ceremony of the Olympics, okay? Yes. Of the Carlos of, Correa Olympics. Of many, many weeks of events, of of, uh, of winners and losers, uh, of drama, of sadness, of happiness. I mean, it's really the same kind of thing. So the main detail I want to talk about here is the fact that, you know, one of the biggest turning points in this saga was... Okay, so the Giants say, sorry, we're not we're not giving you this contract. The Mets agree to a contract, agree to terms within a day, 
right? Steve Cohen comes in and says, yes. And then a few days later, the report comes out. Mets have similar concerns. And the context and that, that phrasing of Mets having similar concerns now makes more sense when we understand, according to Correa and according to Boris, and I have no idea why they would lie about this, that the Mets were consulting the same ankle specialists that the Giants were. And so the Mets end up ended up asking the exact same person that told the Giants no. And what Boris says in this interview is basically saying, I don't understand why the Mets were negotiating if they were going to have the exact same information that the Giants were going to. Because when we first got this report, it was like, okay, there must be something really wrong with this ankle if multiple doctors from multiple teams are seeing this and saying, this is weird. But to find out that it's the same guy, Dr. Robert Anderson, I believe, he's getting put on blast in this, uh, in this article. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Robert Anderson, um, uh, an ankle specialist. Uh, here's, here's what you get for being an ankle specialist at the highest level is you get, <laughs> you get blasted by Scott Boris in USA Today. Uh, and it's not that they're saying they don't respect his opinion. It's that they don't understand why the Mets were suddenly surprised when they got the exact same information that the Giants did. Jordan, this is something that does not happen on this podcast very often, but mm-hmm. I disagree with you, believe it okay. or Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I totally understand why the Mets wanted that same information that mm-hmm. the Giants had. The Giants made a decision based off of some type of information, and mm-hmm. I think it's only reasonable and rational that the Mets would want to see the very same thing that the Giants saw that caused them to make, you know, to pull out of the Korea deal. Now, I do think that the Mets probably asked a number of other doctors in addition to the one that the Giants used. They, there was, there's no way there was exact overlap, right? They probably asked a variety of people. And when you say, oh, okay, then what's the difference? The difference is that the Mets and the Giants, at least we thought at the time, had a different set of priorities and had mm-hmm. different people pulling the strings where, you know, when this happened, we were like, oh, Steve Cohen is essentially saying, who cares what the medical says? I'm rich. Here's my money. Whereas the Giants acted a lot more. Uh, what's the word I want? They acted a lot more rationally or, you know, certainly cautiously. They weren't. Yeah. Cautiously. Yeah. That, yeah. But I, I, and I think that's fair. And I'm not surprised that two teams have the same specialist. And the other thing about this is it's like these kinds of specialists are only consulted all not all the time, right? I mean, these teams have different specialists and different orthopedists and different surgeons. Like they're they kind of have their different ones, but a lot of them overlap, right? There's a reason that Dr. Andrews and Dr. Elitrosh, they're doing multiple teams, Tommy John surgeries. Like that's and that and that extends to other injuries and whatnot, right? So I'm not surprised that they have the same guy. But to to Boris's point, I do sort of understand the standpoint of Sure, yes, you want to know what they saw, right? But to leap headfirst into a 12-year deal in the same way, knowing that you might end up with the same (laughs) recommendation does seem... I can understand being a little bit confused by that. However, this goes back to the point you made in the last pod, which is that I think this also tells us how much Correa did want to be a Met to some degree because of how long Boris was willing to go back and forth with them over the next few weeks before ultimately realizing it ain't happening, they're not coming anywhere close to what we believe you deserve. And so that was my other takeaway from this because especially when you also read Correa's interview and how excited he was and talking to Lindor and all those things. And he also said he talked to all the people with the Giants, but with the Mets, like clearly there was a level they were willing to go to there to be patient (laughs) with a hugely slashed offer from where it began. I, I do find that very interesting. I was interested by 
Correa saying he spoke directly with Steve Cohen. Mm -hmm. This is just a great quote here. He was very happy. He was excited. I even spoke with his wife, Steve Cohen, famous wife guy. It was a good, fun conversation. He was in Hawaii. He seemed like a really, really nice guy. I definitely enjoyed that conversation. He was just welcoming me and all that. And so it appears at this time that there's no concern. And what I am most interested in, this is, I think, the biggest tidbit of information that we don't have and we may never have, is who with the Mets got cold feet or who with the Mets made the decision to, for lack of a better term, trust the medical and withdraw some of the money and try and rework the contract. Was it Cohen? Was it GM Billy Epler? Was it someone else within the organization? Because under knowing what we know about Steve Cohen, I am would be a little surprised if it was just him, right? Who saw yeah. the medical or heard about the medical and said, we're done here. I would imagine that someone went to him and said, this is a legitimate problem. We need to do something. But imagine, imagine that person's job because the person who whether it was ended up being Steve Cohen himself, but also that had to convince him, had read in the New York Post Steve Cohen saying, we need this, I want this, he's important, we need this. And that person or people had to be, with combination of this, you know, Dr. Robert Anderson, <laughs> had to go to Steve Cohen and be like, hey, so this is a bad idea. <laughs> and Steve Cohen, remember, makes this decision initially without consulting most Anybody, of his it, he front couldn't office. have it. It was less than a day, right? He just went full, full force ahead. And there were all those reports about Mets front office people waking up and being like, oh, I guess we got Carlos Correa. Right, right, right. So then for that to then over the next few weeks, then be like, oh, actually, we really can't do this. Like that, that is a fascinating dynamic to me. And the fact that it did lead, lead to Correa or to Cohen having to exercise the restraint and not being willing to offer the guaranteed deals guaranteed dollars in the back half is is really interesting to me and and you know listen and and Correa is the interview with Correa is fascinating and you know if you have an athletic sub I recommend it just because it's it's there's no for a saga like this there's really no hiding from it like there you can't it's it was so much that I think both Boris and Correa realized like all right it's over we got we got a deal he's happy in Minnesota I have, uh, there's no downside for us, like telling us everything, single thing that happened because they feel like they were transparent as much as they could. And then it, it just ended up, you know, not working out in the smoothest way possible. So I think that's interesting too. And, and Correa, you know, talking about how he talked to the Giants and talking to Lindor. And it does seem like a, just an insane emotional swing. I know that was mentioned during his presser, but I really cannot imagine all the things that he <laughs> was, again, it's not a matter of like feeling bad for him, but it's just, it had to have been a completely ridiculous situation uh, over these last uh, few weeks because it's it just seems completely nuts and nothing there's never been anything like this so the Mets yeah. visit Minnesota on September 8th 9th and 10th so you know yeah it's his former team I'm sure him him and Lindor I will and also as it's been pointed out he is gonna play next to Lindor at third for the WBC as far oh, as I know they're cool so, yeah <laughs> that, that doesn't matter it's not like it's not like uh it's not like they're gonna be uh, upset about that so that was also interesting um but they, also that was the other thing from this where he was like I talked to Brandon Crawford and he's like, yeah, like I want to make this work, but also like I'm going to be the shortstop. Whereas with Lindor, he's like, yeah, Lindor's going to be the shortstop. <laughs> he's like, he's like, yeah, sorry, Brandon Crawford. Well, I know a lot of that is the fact that you know Crawford's older and has a one year left in his contract. But I thought that was funny too, where Correa was very confidently deferring to Lindor with no hesitation. Brandon Crawford, he's like, let's be honest, I'm going to be the shortstop. Let's be so, real here. I can't yeah. wait to learn from you. Yeah, right. So about how to do this. Funny. Uh, all right, so that's that's we'll, we'll, we'll put a bow on that. Um, no you know, mas. Ma 
No mas. Yeah. No mas. Okay. No, no more Correa things. No I, more I'm Correa excited things. to watch him with the Twins. I think it's a good move and whatever. All right. We have uh, other transactions that we would like to get to. Let's begin with a trade. This is an interesting trade. Let's talk about the Dodgers. We have not talked about that. I think the most we've talked about the Dodgers this uh, this offseason was the Trevor Bauer uh, stuff a couple weeks ago. Um, I know they've made a couple signings here and there, you know, Noah Syndergaard and whatnot. But one of the biggest questions of the Dodgers offseason was, so they're really just like, fine, maybe they're not going to, you know, retain Trey Turner. That wasn't surprising. But are they really just going to roll with Gavin Lux at shortstop? It's possible that's still the case, but they've made a deal with the Miami Marlins to acquire Miguel Rojas, who has really been the face of the Marlins uh, since he got there, um, for uh, minor league infielder Jacob Amaya, who I'll talk about a little bit after. But let's talk about Miggy Rowe uh, to the Dodgers and kind of the Dodgers' shortstop plans in general. Do you believe that Miguel Rojas will be the shortstop on opening day for the Dodgers? Uh, no, I, I don't. <laughs> I think... He is fine being the shortstop on a team like the Marlins, but I don't think the Dodgers are willing to start the year with him there. He mm-hmm. seems like Gavin Lux insurance, mm-hmm. right? If Lux doesn't hit, if his glove doesn't translate to short, if he gets the yips again for whatever reason, Rojas is a totally sufficient player to plug in if something goes wrong. And that's why they went out and got him because they didn't have that type of veteran player on the roster. And they didn't want Chris Taylor to have to play shortstop and be that guy. That was not a tenable situation. And so going out and getting um, Rojas makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, it's interesting to me that they didn't just go get like Elvis Andrews and just pay him. Right. Well, we know they're still trying to duck the luxury tax to some degree. Now, it seems like they still would be able to to, to make some room and do something like that. But yeah, it, it's a strange one. And, and the other question is how it affects the outfield because I think some people saw this and said, okay, well, this actually does make sense. If he is the shortstop, now you slide Lux the second and you can keep Taylor in the outfield as a starter as opposed to starting James Outman. Now, James Outman might just be really good because it's the Dodgers and who knows. Um, but that, that, that kind of answers that question. You know, who was that guy last year? It was Hans Alberto, who was, I would say, relatively disappointing for them. Uh, Rojas kind of slides into that role, I think. Um, with with better uh, defense and maybe a little bit less less bat, but I also think it's just kind of a weird way for for his his tenure with the Marlins then because we thought he was going to get traded multiple times over the last few years and he gave multiple interviews being like, look, I know I remember just during twenty twenty one he was like, look, I know we suck, um, but like I want to see this through for the Marlins and it's like okay, well you're going to be waiting a while, but like he was the guy that was like the most optimistic, positive, like he was the Marlins poster boy. Of course, he was a little bit older and it's not like he was a star player, but this is cool because now he gets to go to a team that is uh, all but guaranteed to be, uh, you know, in the postseason again and to see him have that opportunity. Um, of course, the team that he came up with uh, initially is also very cool. So I'm happy for him because, you know, he's one of the more more likable uh, players in the sport. So whatever role he is going to be playing for the Dodgers, I'm sure he is happy to be doing it. Uh, versus just like being traded to like a wild card team in July, like this is much better than that. So I think in that way the organization did right by them, by him. But it is it is kind of a weird way for it to to suddenly end with the Marlins. Seventh all time in Marlins franchise history in games played, behind just Damn. a great list: Luis Castillo, Jeff Conine, Giancarlo Stanton, Mike Lowell, Hanley Ramirez, and Alex Gonzalez. Miguel Rojas coming in at number seven, just above Derek Lee and Dan Ugla. Like think about. Dan Ugla as a Marlin and how much time that is above and how iconic that is. And he's above Dan Ugla. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's eight seasons. Of course, you know, he did play his rookie year uh, with the Dodgers. And I'm just here. This will be a fun little, little exercise here. I'm just going to pull up the the last game that he played with the Dodgers. Because I don't believe... Oh, no, he, wow, he got in that bat in the postseason in the 2014 NLDS. But just looking at the, the... I mean, the 2014 Dodgers, I mean, is there anybody left from that team besides Kershaw? I don't think so. Um, does that make him the longest tenured Dodger? <laughs> that, I think it does. He's he's got he's got more more experience around those parts. So so that year, Miguel Rojas in his rookie season with the Dodgers hit one home run. He was one career home run as a Dodger off of Max Scherzer. Oh my God! Incredible. We gotta go. We gotta go find that. And that would have been his first career homer. Yes, first his career first homer career homer against uh, Max Scherzer. Uh, quickly, Jacob Amaya. I mean, he's he's one of like the, when you're the Dodgers, you have a hundred of these guys. Um, he's been he reached AAA last year, just like a back control guy, but he did ha- unlock some more power. And honestly, like this kind of profile where it's more uh, contact ability <laughs> versus you know huge tools and swing and miss and the Monty Harris and Lewis Brinson types, like. This is yeah. the kind of player that the Marlins should be going after more. So, and, and honestly, he's, he's just like it could be a minor league version of Gene Segura. So, and, and probably Big League ready at some point this year. So, I, I like that move. Let's talk about the Dodgers offseason very quickly. They have made uh, the organizational decision, it seems, to try and stay under that luxury tax. Mm-hmm. And I think that is silly because who Stream cares? You're the Dodgers. You have You're the, the Dodgers. <laughs> Go for it. But I also have a, harder, a slightly harder time critiquing them considering how far they've blown past it. In the yeah, past, they've been right? right one of the only teams that have been blowing past it the last few years. Yep, and it's not as if this is a bad team. Betts, Freeman, Will Smith, Max Muncie at the top of the lineup is still really good. But for the first time in a long time, you can take a look at the middle to bottom of this Dodgers lineup and have real concerns. Yeah, Muncie figured things out on in the second half last year, but the first half was just so bad. Yep, JD Martinez is th- going to be thirty six. Who knows what Gavin Lux is? Trace Thompson may be flashing the pan. Chris Taylor looked wash. And what's a James Outman, yeah. right? And so for the first time in a while, you can envision a world where the Dodgers lineup isn't a juggernaut. Now, at the same time, you can envision a world where it is. And all these guys have a lot of upside and it all clicks. And James Outman is an all-star. And like, you know, that's a real world too. But it is a grayer outlook than we've seen from this franchise that has been such a machine. And this looks like a 92-win team, not an 111-win team. And maybe that's very picky, but yeah. it is a distinction. I agree. I agree. I also think that uh, while there are some health question marks, this pitching staff, even without Bueller, should be really, really good. And if, if the Dodgers have shown us anything, it doesn't matter who you throw into the bullpen. Like, they are going to get outs. And that that is impressive. But but I'm just excited to see who these young guys are that, that they believe in, right? Because I... They have given us every reason to believe that they will be right about at least one of Outman, Vargas, Michael Bush, right? Like one of those guys will be a definite contributor this season at the big league level. And I guess you could still count Lux in there. You know, he's only 25, but he's certainly a higher profile. So, but I agree with you. My other big takeaway looking at the depth chart is like, Jason Hayward could make this team. <laughs> like when they signed him, we were like, oh, that's cute. Like, that's cool. That's nice. If Jason Hayward's like, oh, wait a minute. Jason Hayward might like actually be on the Dodgers. So yeah, it is it's a weird offseason. There's still some time left. Maybe, maybe they can add some other death pieces. But yeah, it, it's a weird one. It's not, not a bad offseason, per, perhaps. But but you know, as some people pointed out, they have argu- arguably lost the most. There was a good fangraphs piece about this recently. They have lost, I think, the most net war in free agency of any other team. Are the Padres the favorite in the NL West? I think ah, the upside with them is is 
notably higher than the Dodgers, I do believe. Um, I think I think you could make that case, yeah. I think you could. I think, again, I, am I trusting it to the same degree? This is a good transition to the next one we're going to talk about, which is Nelson Cruz, who I don't believe necessarily swings that uh, pendulum in, in the Padres' favor, but it is an interesting move. Nelson Cruz, uh, 42-year-old DH. Now, if you watch Nelson Cruz... In 2022, we thought we, we we've been saying for five years, like this guy is ageless. This guy is gonna do this until he's 50. Well, if you watch him in 2022, you started to see is he still a major league hitter? Yeah, but he is not an impact bat anymore. Like I I feel comfortable saying that, and that's okay. That does not mean he cannot still play an important role in this Padres team. But that, <laughs> there were just some moments, some at bats with him where it was like, oh yeah, you are 41. Like that's fine. It's gonna happen. It's gonna have. It's gonna happen. To everybody. But it, it it can happen pretty quick when you're a 41 year old DH. So, but what do you think about this move? Well, it's just again, I want to remind everybody. Nelson Cruz signed a professional contract before Juan Soto was born. <laughs> okay. Cruz signed in February, 1998. Soto was born in October, 1998. So there was like an entire season where Nelson Cruz was getting paid to play baseball by the New York Mets, which is funny. And Juan Soto was like a fetus. Yep. Okay. That's nuts. And now they're playing together. Cruz, definitely not what he was. I don't think he's totally washed. There's definitely still some value for him you know, for him to be on this team. And what I do like that the Padres have done this offseason behind the big moves at the top is there's a level of depth here that hasn't always been here in previous seasons. Mm-hmm. And that's Cruz. That's Matt Carpenter. That's Adam Engel, who mm-hmm. they picked up this week. Yeah, we Again, mentioned that one. Yep. Not sexy, not great, but the gap between Adam Engel and the AAA schlub mm-hmm. is big and notable and is what makes teams like the Rays the Rays and teams like the Dodgers the Dodgers. And something that the Padres have been really severely lacking over the last couple of seasons, even when they've had these high-level players at the top of their roster. And to be honest, that more than some of the other stuff gives me a little bit of faith, a little bit more faith that they can catch the Dodgers and maybe even pass the Dodgers in the NL West. They also needed to make these moves. And, you know, they, they signed Alfonso Rivas uh, to a minor league deal like they needed to fill in those gaps because there's no more prospects coming. <laughs> there's, I mean, we'll, we're going to get to, you know, they just signed the top catcher in this class. He's 16. You know, Jackson Merrill is very impressive, but he's an A-ball. Like, they don't have that wave of talent that they've had for so long coming at the top of the minors. That that doesn't exist anymore. It's all it's all been traded away, right? And so you have to fill in those gaps with veterans, with, with bench pieces, with the angles, with the carpet. And now it's funny because they're doing it with the oldest players Correct. <laughs> instead of the youngest players in Carpenter and Cruz. But I think that that's 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 good. That's that's that there is value to that off the field as much as there is on the field. Now there's risk to that too in that Cruz and Carpenter, it's like what are, what are we really getting? I mean we saw the incredible upside of Carpenter and we saw a potentially um, no longer impactful version of Cruz, but it, particularly Cruz as far as off the field impact. I mean, it doesn't get, but he, this is true in any clubhouse. Uh, the one where he's literally the GM of the WBC team on the team that has Juan Soto and Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. Like that is, that's not an accident. Um, so I, I'm sure that that uh, is, is is a big part of this. And yeah, I'm just curious, like what, how many at-bats would we expect Nelson Cruz to get, I guess would be an interesting question. Um, in in this year, like he still got 500 plate appearances last year, but that's because he wasn't traded, and that's because he was on the Nationals, right? Like I I would be stunned if he gets 400 this year, you know, maybe even 300, and that's fine. Uh, but it is cool yeah. that the Padres 
It, we, we have talked a lot about the Padres' evolution from the most irrelevant 30th team in baseball to the top of our consciousness as yeah. baseball people. Oh, yeah. And I think this is another little step there that Nelson Cruz, who is chasing a ring, picked the Padres. Imagine that. Imagine a veteran player picking the Padres because yeah. they want to go chase a ring. Yeah. That's a good point, though. That's that is another important element of this, right? Is 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 the Nelly Cruz uh ring chase. Um, so that's that's another like just Padres uh, a storyline to watch. If he can again, he's gonna have to stick on the team. And maybe it is just in a bench role and he's worth having around. Maybe it's on a situation where like he's so bad by the end of the year, but he's like on the bench for all the postseason games anyway. Like they like phantom IL him for the rest of the season. They like put him on the 60 day and just call him old, but he gets to stick around <laughs> instead of releasing him. Like that that is that would make so much sense. Abdominal exhaustion. Right. Like I am 42, uh, 40. He's going to turn 43 in July. Oh my goodness. Um, so yes, we, we, we love this move though. It, it makes a lot of sense. And by the way, it, I, I will, I, I just mentioned, you know, I just noticed pulling up the script, Jeff Char and being like, wow, Jason here can make teams. Xander Bogarts being on this team is, is insane. I, I know we like did all this when it just happened, but it was in that wave of winter meeting stuff. Like him being on this team is, is truly ridiculous yes but anyway uh okay Padres are very good and makes me feel better about being like yeah the Padres probably are the favorite all right let's move to another uh this is I mean probably a lot of people's favorite move as far as a neutral observer of the offseason Andrew McCutcheon returning to Pittsburgh to play for the team where he became Andrew McCutcheon that's maybe the simplest way to put it uh Andrew McCutcheon I think a lot of people I so we just mentioned Nelson Cruz. Like, what does he really have left? Let's talk about Andrew McCutcheon, the player, before we get to the obvious sentimentality of, of this return. Because he's another guy who, you know, he's turning. He just turned 36 in October. And when you watch him, you might think, ah, this is not the same. And you look at a 700 OPS. I have, I still think he has something to give here. He still has some of the best plate discipline in baseball. The most incredible thing about him, he's still one of the fastest players in baseball. And this is as a 36-year-old who has suffered a serious <laughs> lower body injury in the not-so-distant past. He is one of the most incredible um, athletes we have in the game and, and one of the most likable veterans. And I remember uh, this past year when I the Brewers were, were in Cincinnati and I, I was talking to um, Brewers uh, assistant hitting coach Connor Dawson. And what he was telling me about McCutcheon and the kind of impact that he has, not just as a veteran leadership, but from a like hitting savant and just like baseball genius standpoint, he was like, this guy is unlike anything I've ever seen. And that is exactly the kind of person that you want on a young team like Pittsburgh. And on top of all the obviously extremely cool thing that is Andrew McCutcheon going back to Pittsburgh, I love this. I like this move. Uh, it, the, the level of sentimentality here is enormous. It's good that he is around some of these younger players. Now, I do have the concern that he might take up some space from some younger players yeah. who yeah. should be getting time in Pittsburgh. And whenever you have an emotional signing like this, there's always the issue of, okay, what if he sucks, right? Because you dream <laughs> yep. of like Thierry Henry, the famous soccer player who came back and played for Arsenal when he was like 75 and scored a goal and had this incredible send off, mm -hmm. right? That's what you dream of. But what actually usually happens is that the old player is old and then is bad and is bad in the uniform. And then you remember that. Yes. And then there's an uncomfortable scenario where like the pod, the pirates have to like DFA 
Yeah. You know, Andrew McCutcheon. Now, that probably won't happen because they won't be good enough for it to get uncomfortable. Yeah. But that is just always a concern. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. No, 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 that's that's fair. I mean, I don't think he's been, again, I know he's been like a league average hitter, but like it's not like he's demonstrated decline to the point where you think that's around the corner. Um, kind of in the same way that you would say about Cruz, who's obviously much older. But I agree with you. And and it's really interesting. Jason Mackey, who broke the story and has, has kind of wrote about how this came together, he mentioned that. Like, that's an obvious thing. It's not like Ben Charrington. <laughs> it's not like Ben Charrington was, was like, this is a must we have to do. I think he came around to it because he realized the value of Andrew McCutcheon being around and how much he wanted to come back. I mean, Andrew McCutcheon still lived in Pittsburgh the whole time. Like he's, he's always lived there. He's still, he's lived there since he, since the trades and all the other teams he's been on. And it sounds like he wanted to come back and be a part of this, not just as like a last farewell for me as a major leaguer, but like he wants to see the pirates be good again too. Now, is that going to happen this year? Probably not. But like if he can be a part of moving them more in that direction, I think he really wants to do that. And it's not like he doesn't know that there are other people to play that need to play. At the same time, we talk about the younger players like the Jack Sawinskis of the world and some of the other guys that are going to come up that need at bats. The real losers of this trade, of this signing, are Miguel Andujar and Connor Joe, who are the kind of players who are getting these at bats because they're on the Pirates. And they're like, they're not young players anymore, but it's like they're here to kind of reestablish their value. Those are the guys who are getting screwed by this. And like, there's no sentimentality there versus like the prospects that we're trying to develop like Jack Sawinski. The picture of McCutcheon and Tamar Johnson in spring training is going to make Pirates oh my God. explode. <laughs> also, I just like, Kutch is going to have some incredible O'Neill Cruz jokes for us. Yeah. <laughs> like he is going to deliver some, I mean, again, just having him around. And, and, and I tweeted this, but like that's the Pirates off season. How much better they get, who knows? But like having him and Rich Hill and honestly, G-Man Choi, uh, a veteran guy and Hedges, like this is truly exactly who you want around your team who's trying to figure out how to be competent major leaguers. Like it is exactly the kinds of guys. Last point. I like Derek Shelton and mm-hmm. I wish the Pirates manager and I wish him all the best. However, it, it it's probably true he's at least on somewhat of a warm chair mm-hmm. at the moment. And I think we are as close as we have been in many years to player manager Andrew McCutcheon, <laughs> okay? There is yeah. a scenario here that plays out, yeah. whether this or next season, maybe he comes back, where Andrew McCutcheon, player manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates, who says no. I like Derek Shelton, yeah, but I'm just saying. I have no sense for his interest in being a coach <laughs> yeah. in the way that like Yachty Molina was actively trying to manage the team all the time. But that is a great point. Um, all right, one more move uh, we wanted to mention. Of course, another one of our favorite players in baseball and someone who I was really curious where he was going to end up for a variety of reasons. And that is Trey Mancini signing a two-year deal uh, with a conditional opt-out with the Chicago Cubs, uh, kind of putting a bow on what has been a very active, and I think we're at the point where everyone's like, ooh, sneaky offseason, look at the Cubs, they got a lot better. And I think that's mostly true. But this is an interesting fit for a team that just signed Eric Hosmer and has Matt Mervis, you know, kind of on the doorstep. What do you think about this fit? Because i happy for Trey Mancini. He got two years, and we love Trey Mancini, and the Cubs fans are going to love him for obvious reasons. But as a baseball fit, it is a little curious. But what do you think here? I think they're – I think the Cubs are basically saying one of Hosmer, Mancini, and Bellinger are going to just completely be terrible or hurt. Like, one of these right. three players will be an absolute zilch mm-hmm. and not do anything. And then, you know, if it's uh, if it's Bellinger, you move half the center – 
and you can put Mancini in left or there are ways to move these guys around. And I think the odds of Hosmer, Mancini, Bellinger all being contributing members of the 2023 Chicago Cubs is like fucking zero. <laughs> and they uh, they know that. They just don't know which who the zero will be, right? And so that's why they're fine having all three of them. I think Mancini is probably, I feel a level more confident of him being competent than the yeah. other two. Yeah. It's weird because... I mean, I, I love Trey. We don't have to recap his whole incredible story. But, like, the thing about him is he left us with the most sour taste. I mean, Hosmer is different because everyone thinks Hosmer sucks. But, like, it wasn't, like, Mancini for the Orioles looked like Trey Mancini. Like, he was, I mean, maybe a little bit less, right, since he since he's come back. Um, but, like, he looked like that's the Trey Mancini you're getting, right? He was hitting 268, 347, 404, right? And a lot of that was it would probably be more power if they didn't move the wall back and up 50 feet. <laughs> you know, like, he was getting killed by Baltimore earlier in the season, too. And then when he goes to Houston, you're like, forget the postseason. You're like, oh, my God, well, this is a perfect fit. I mean, it's in a better ballpark and better offense and better and – he, and he just sucked. He just wasn't good, and he was even worse in the postseason. And it was like, okay, like, I don't really know what to make of him. At the same time, he's – He's only 30, going to be 31 in March. Like, I I wouldn't be shocked if he can get back to right what he was doing in Baltimore. But it was kind of an interesting second half for him. So I think that kind of soured a lot of people on him and, and made it to the point where we are a little bit late in the, in the in the offseason where he's finally finding a deal. But good for him for getting two years. I mean, that's that's pretty sweet. It's a good place to end up for him. The, the thing with Mancini to remember is that he had cancer, right? Oh, and besides right, 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 yeah. missing a whole season... And the emotional story of it all, that takes a toll on your body. Even if you come back fully healthy, right, and you beat cancer and you you make it through, you had cancer, right? That makes life more difficult for you. And yeah. I think that that kind of got lost more in his 2021 than his 2022. Like, he's not the same physical person. Right, that he was before. No matter what he does, I, I that'll always be a part of his life and a part of his story. And he deserves tons of credit for getting back on the field. Mm -hmm. But it's just as we evaluate a player like this, it's important to keep that in mind. Totally, right? totally. And I think it's both credit and also not fair to him to point to the fact that he looked like Trey Mancini for all of 2021, yeah. and like that's that, which is incredible, right? That's it's amazing. It's not just like comeback player because he because he was able yeah. to come back and be a major leaguer, but like he looked, he made us forget just because it was like, yeah, he looks looks pretty damn good. So anyway, always rooting for Trey Mancini, uh, one of the best dudes in the sport, and yeah, I mean Cubs fans, that's a layup, and and for him too, like city wise, like fantastic, love it. Uh, all right, we are going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back with more baseball barbercast. Negro Leagues Baseball Museum President Bob Kendrick hosts the SiriusXM original podcast, Black Diamonds. The Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were, and they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play? Hear stories of the leagues and legends that shaped sport, culture, and society. That's why the museum is so important. It's like, we are never going to forget you. Episodes of the award-winning Black Diamonds are now available wherever you get your podcasts. We're not talking about balls and strikes. We're talking about your life. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. Jake Mintz, Jordan Schusterman. This is a baseball podcast. Records twice a week. Oh my goodness gracious. That's Jordan, us. The, We're doing it. Baseball date, pod in progress. The date today is January 16th, which means it is one day after January 15th, one of the most important days on the baseball calendar. 
It's not something that captivates the casual baseball fan, quite like the draft or the World Series or the All-Star Game. It is the International Signing Day, which used to be July 2nd, known as J2. It was moved to January 15th, now known as J15. And it is the day where all the young international prospects are able to sign with teams. Yes. Now, this is, of course, uh, a day that has, as you mentioned, moved around. Uh, I think a combination of of COVID and uh, the new CBA that changed this. I like this change, by the way, just because it feels like a signing day making happening in the offseason makes more sense than in the middle of the summer. Um, but this is a huge day. And you mentioned how it doesn't receive quite as, as much fanfare. But these players, like, you don't have to look very hard to see that Many of the best players in the league are the guys that once signed on July 2nd as 16-year-olds coming out of Venezuela uh, or the Dominican Republic or Colombia or, in some cases, Korea um, or, or Cuba, uh, of course. And this is a day that is is controversial in some senses because there's been a lot of discussion around what this day means and how we get to this day in terms of teams coming to agreements with players far before uh, this day and far before they're 16 or 15 or 14 and all the problems that that surround that. And I think all the, the context of the international draft that has been discussed about in the CBA that ultimately did not get done, like these are complicated issues. But I think what is important to remember at the very core of it and, and the fact of this matter, of, of this day, as, as Jesse Sanchez at MLB, one of our favorite former colleagues over there and one of the most incredible reporters in the space in the game, is that it is a day of joy for these players who are getting life-changing money and career. I mean, it's this is the, the, the chance for them to, to become Major League Baseball players in a very real way. And it's really cool. It's really cool to see how it's treated as a celebration at every single academy in the Dominican Republic um, and, and you know, bringing in players from Venezuela and, you know, Bahamas and Curacao and all those. And so it's a big deal. And these are players that we are going to know very soon because the best ones will be a part of your baseball consciousness a lot sooner than you realize. And so we wanted to make sure we talked about uh, some of the highlights from this day. Um, well, I just want to wanted to mention some say, names, but yeah, go ahead. I just want to say that, like, it's important to both critique some of the problematic aspects of how international baseball signs amateur prospects, like how that whole system works. Mm -hmm. It is very complicated and complex and involves, you know, an unpacking of colonialism and, you know, modern globalism. And like there are all these other forces at play that weave into that story. And that's important. It's also important, like you said, to recognize this as a day of joy, that this is a life changing day. It is the realization of a dream for so many of these players and obviously playing in the major leagues is another part of that dream. But it, it, what gets lost, I think, with a lot of American gringo fans uh, like us before we, I think, got more educated about this is just signing is is a win for all of these kids. Just being there, just getting this life-changing money for their family. This is the day they were working towards. It's not as much necessarily winning the World Series or making it to the big leagues. While that is important. This day, January 15th, signing with the team, getting that check, putting on that hat and realizing that dream is such a, such a, such a big deal to these kids. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think it's cool when you see them at the academies where it's like, this is our signing class. Like it's a bunch of players together who have been playing together since they were 12, 13 that, oh, I'm just, I get to a bunch of my friends and I are signing with the nationals or signing with the Yankees. Like that part is also uh, really cool. Of course, most people are interested. Okay. Well, who, who are the best guys? 
Um, at the top, we have a, a Venezuelan catcher named Ethan Salas, who's the younger brother of Marlins shortstop prospect Jose Salas. The Padres, who have been a, one of the most active teams in this space for years now, uh, are the team that, that signed him uh, for a $5.6 million bonus, which is, I believe, the, the highest bonus. I mean, they're basically setting records every year because the bonuses go up uh, ever so slightly. But there you go. I mean, this is a big part of why the Padres are able to keep reloading and, and trading and reloading and trading is because they are very, very active um, in this space. So that's certainly an exciting one. Uh, the, the Mariners signed a switch inning shortstop named Feldman Celestin, uh, who is also one of the top guys for over $4 million. And then you also have a, a bunch of just recognizable names, sons of big leaguers. You know, Juan Uribe Jr. Uh, signed a contract uh, with the White Sox. I thought that was a fun one. Of course, one that got a lot of attention is Juan Soto's younger brother, Elian Soto, signed with the Nationals for uh, 200000 um, and Juan Soto was there, which I thought was really cool to see Juan Soto all dressed up uh, at the Nationals Academy to see his brother sign. So I thought that was cool. And a, a couple of the things that, that just caught my attention, uh, a couple more players from the Bahamas signed. I know that's something we've been super interested in. Uh, the Marlins signed one, Gennaro Miller, as well as Sebastian Walcott. The, the Rangers signed him for over $3 million. We've, we've seen a lot of, of growth in, in the space of, of, of Bahamian baseball, something we've been very tied in with and, and very excited to see. And so always love to see a couple of those guys uh, getting more, more attention and, and getting significant signing bonuses to kind of promote more players from the Bahamas to want to pursue baseball as a career. Uh, and hey, the Orioles. The Orioles are signing uh, international players now. This has been one of the one of the more under the radar, I think, crazy stories in baseball for the last 20 years is the fact that the Orioles were essentially punting on the international market more than any other team. But over the last three uh, years or so since Michael Elias has come in, they've been like, hey, actually, this is important that we sign players out of these regions. And they're like, oh. Yeah. Hmm. So how about that? <laughs> so they gave out the the biggest signing bonus, I believe, uh, that they had in their in their history uh, to a, a shortstop from the Dominican named Luis Almeida. So I thought that was cool. Congratulations to your team for participating in one of the most important uh, talent <laughs> markets in in the entire sport. That's nice. It's nice for them to to catch up on that on that perspective. Uh, and then you get some fun stories like the the Pirates signed a pitcher from Uganda which is amazing that you, you think about that there are scouts in Africa finding these players. Like, that is incredible. Uh, they also signed the top uh, amateur pitcher from Korea, so that was very cool to see. For the Pirates, the Cardinals signed a six foot nine, 16 year old pitcher from Venezuela. So that's a, a thing that that exists apparently. Is the six foot nine, 17 year olds in Venezuela? Um, but yeah, there's there's all kinds of, of fun signings, and we encourage you to to check out all the coverage from that from Jesse Sanchez and MLB. And it's just remember that like these names, I, I know they all kind of will run together now. You will know some of these very soon, and some of them will also be way worse than their signing bonus says because it is very hard to scout players this young, and that's a big part of this calculus as well. All right. Are you ready? Uh, Jake Mintz, we have been teasing that we would bring this back for a long time, and it's been a few weeks. Let's do, let's do Dead Ball Madlibs first. I'm just excited about this. We'll do, we'll do email after. Is that okay? Can we, can we do that? Okay. Well, we're going to do an email at the end, but let's let's get to our dead ball mad libs. For those of you tuning in for the first time, wondering what the hell what the hell are they talking about? This is a segment we introduced earlier this off season. This is a way to celebrate some of the crazy uh, times of of yester 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 year. Baseball a hundred years ago was very different. The world a hundred years ago was very different, and because of that, the stories of the players that played a hundred years ago are often super duper hilarious. 
And because of that, we wanted to come up with a segment that allows us to celebrate these stories while also playing a silly podcast game. So the way this works is that Jake uh, Jake has brought us a, a dead ball Mad Lib today. And the way it works is he will be reading us from either a Wikipedia or, or a Sabre page of, of, of a player. And at points along the way, he will stop and make me guess what he is about to say next, um, which is often quite challenging because these stories are tremendously ridiculous. So, Jake, who are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Pinch Thomas. Pinch Thomas. Okay. I, already a tremendous uh, baseball name. I'm very excited to learn more. This is from the Sabre page. This is a very well-written article by someone named Joanne Holbert. Thank you, Joanne, for your contribution to American culture. Here we go. <clears throat> the train pulled out of South Station in Boston on February 18th, 1911, heading for Los Angeles and the new location for Red Sox spring training. Several stops were made along the way as the party picked up blank. The party picked up uh, very some very important cargo, something so they picked up. Very, I don't know what specifically, but they're picking a cargo. What, what kind of as what cargo? The players picked up. Players. The party oh. picked up players <laughs> from teams over the course okay. of the country as uh, new players and returning veteran players. I love this. The, the train, train is, was picking everybody up. The train from Boston to Los Angeles is like weaving <laughs> across the country to pick up the Red Sox. It was Sox. like the, the spring training school bus, uh, yeah. except it was a train across the country. It was like a montage in a movie. Hop on board. <laughs> the train rolled on to Kansas City, where four recruits came aboard. Among them, Chester David Thomas from Sharon, Kansas. Hmm. Born on January 24th, 1888, he had moved as a youngster with his family to Kansas. Known as Chet, Chess, Chubby Chester, Chatterer Chet, Tom, Tommy, the Golden West Retriever, the Kansan, the Baseball Populace, Goat, and Pinch, the sobriquet that became the, the enduring nickname among them. Well, I'm not going to try to guess all those nicknames, um, but, but Pinch, okay, so Pinch is what survived. There were a lot of good ones in there. I'm surprised the Golden West Retriever didn't win out. That's an incredible name. <laughs> Thomas's brother said he was at a loss as to where it came from. <laughs> Although oh, Thomas man. was most frequently called Chet by Boston scribes, perhaps his record as a blank had all to do with the nickname. Ooh, okay. Um, his record as a... Ooh, had to do with the pinch. We're talking about pinch. Yeah. What record as a pinch hitter? As a pinch hitter, correct. Okay, yeah, yeah. This guy's great as a pinch hitter. Get up there, pinch. <laughs> Thomas started playing baseball as an infielder, local grounds in Kansas, but started his career on the West Coast. At Oakland, he was used as a pinch hitter with great success and was famous for blank. Famous for his situational pinch hitting. <laughs> famous Bunt bunting? Famous for getting on base by hitting weak but untouchable infield flies. Wait, 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 wait. Weak but untouchable infield flies? Correct. Where are you hitting those? <laughs> I don't know. That's what it wait, says. like honestly, let's let's stop for a second. Where where like the only the only way that that makes sense is to me is like basically a flare over the pitcher where the yeah. pitcher is like coming down the mound and it's like barely hit over the pitcher and the infielders are too far. That's the only way I can imagine an infield fly being yeah. weakly hit and hard to catch. Okay, go ahead. Incredible. Like that was, but it, it, I love that that was just his thing. <laughs> just plopping it over the pitcher. 
After a game on August 7th in some year, 1907, he and his fellow catcher on his team, Carl Mitz, not Mintz, Mitz. Mitz. Got into he a was disagreement. Mitz, not Mintz. No N. Got into a disagreement at a local watering hole. The Oakland Tribune reported that they went at it, quote, hammer and tongs until spectators stepped in and separated them. Bad blood had existed between the two men. And when Chet started bragging about how he blank. He was a better infield fly hitter than he was. <laughs> Chet started bragging about how he had landed a two bagger that broke up a game the previous week. And he wanted to know why Mitz couldn't come up with a big hit himself. Wait, that broke up a game? Does that mean like, like blew tied. open? Oh, okay, okay. It's not so like he, he, he hit a double and everyone was like, whoa, that was crazy. We can't play this game anymore. So this is the equivalent of like Real Muto and Garrett Stubbs sitting at the bar. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say this is a teammate, right? Yeah. And Real Muto turns to him. He's like, why can't you get any more hits, Stubbs? And Stubbs. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, Mitz responded, oh, I'm there with a big wallop, all right, he countered as he proceeded to plant a fist on Thomas's jaw. Oh, you want to see a big hit? Pop, pop. Mm. The fight would not be Pinch's last, and it established his reputation as a... A brawler. A loud-mouthed scrapper. Mm, okay, it was pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, 1911, we'll fast forward to then. He ends up signing with the Red Sox. Okay. Oh, and he okay. tries out with the Red Sox in spring training. And his first game, the Boston Globe reports that he, quote, looked awfully good. He shot the ball to second and blank. Shot the ball to second and played impeccable defense. Nailed Wagner by a city block. Oh, oh wait, wait, wait. Shot like as, as a catcher, he yeah, shot yeah, the yeah, ball yeah. to second. Oh, I see. Oh, he's a laser beam. He's he, popping one sixes. He threw Honus Wagner out by a city block. Damn, Honus, what are we doing, man? Are you trying to run on pinch? On March 14th, while Chet was out on the town for a night of sightseeing with friends, his baseball career nearly came to an abrupt end. Oh, no. <gasps> when he was blank by a blank of blanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Either he was hit by a car or he was in a fight. Some No, I think he was hit by a car. He was read the, blank by a blank of blanks. Blank by a blank He of was blank blanks. Hit. By a group of, I don't know, is what what is it? Rolls Royces. No, he was beaten by a gang of street thugs. Oh, I was gonna say like jumped by a group of kids or something. Okay, yeah. yeah. He suffered a serious head injury, and doctors feared he'd lose sight in one eye. He recovered with only a black eye, his sight undamaged, which in those days is a miracle. If doctors oh think yeah. you're gonna lose sight and you don't. Woo. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like any that's again we we we've mentioned this right. There's so many. So many uh, uh, bumps along the way medically that you can hit. It's like, oh, here's a splinter. Oh, just kidding. I have a, I have a terrible infection. Oh, now I'm dead. Like, that's right. kind of how that worked. <laughs> so he establishes himself as like a solid backup catcher, like a Doug Mirabelli type for the Red Sox. Love and it. And heading into 1916, he had a tough year in 1915. And so there were preseason trade rumors that he was going to be traded. But he ended up on the team ready to work. And he did not want to start on the wrong foot. When assigned his room at the Copley Square Hotel, he was handed a key to room number 23. At the time, the number 23 had a negative connotation of... Well, what do you mean? It's your Jordan year. What's wrong with 23? Well, this was before <laughs> that. So it uh, had a negative connotation along the lines of being forced by someone to leave quickly. Which, what? So 23, maybe the that's number like 23 a... 
had a connotation of being forced to leave quickly, whatever. He complained to his teammate. What do you think of that, huh? Giving me room 23? Gee whiz, the season hasn't opened yet and he's trying to start me with 23. Not on your life. He demanded a different room at the, from the desk Wait, so clerk. This is like the equivalent of like living on the 13th floor or whatever. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. And he got a different room. He's like, you're trying to get rid of me. During spring training, a new catcher, Sam Agnew, acquired from the St. Louis Browns, received more attention than our friend Pinch. But by May... The manager of the team considered partnering Pinch with? I don't know. I, I just wanted to point out all his Pinch stuff. Like, he seems like a starter. It seems like he's starting most games. Okay, partnering with what? Babe Ruth. Oh, <laughs> wait, partnering in what context? Pitcher catcher. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, right. Because this is the Red Sox in 1917 or whatever. Yeah. During a game in May against Washington, the Babe walked nine batters, three oh, in the inning alone. Oh, damn. We should, maybe you should try hitting. And, and the manager concluded that this other catcher was the wrong guy to handle Babe's curves. Babe's curves is great because it has. Whoa, they blamed it on Pinch? Like the frame? No, they blamed bad? it on the other guy. Oh, the other oh guy. I see. I see. And that's why he brought in Pinch. Got it. They brought now he's a Pinch in, catcher. Brought Pinch into pit into catch. And they the said, catch. the wonderful form of George Ruth may be justifiably traced to Thomas, pinch Thomas. It, particularly Babe Ruth's pitching was, was this good. But I would argue, ready? Here's my take. Two, two, two thoughts here. First of all, if that had never happened, Babe would have quit pitching sooner, started hitting sooner, mm. and probably hits 800 home runs. And so never leaves the Red Sox. Never leaves the Red Sox. So that's one thought. Second thought. How do you feel about the concept of a pinch catcher? He wasn't a pinch catcher. He was like the first personal catcher. I understand. I'm I'm bringing this is totally aside. The idea of a pinch catcher that you could use a pinch catcher in baseball, like like as a specific defensive replacement, you could put in a pinch catcher. Like this is how we're extending Austin Hedges' career, right? I mean, oh, this yeah. is really where we're getting these guys in. It's like you could bring in a pinch catcher for one inning. Or for I, one batter. I don't think casual fans are horny enough for catcher defense for that. Fair um, enough. Just to finish this quote off, uh, Pinch has coached the Baltimore on ever since they mobilized at the Ramparts in Hot Springs, which is incredible <laughs> in spring training. Ruth has become accustomed to look to blank for advice. Look to P Pinch? Look Chubby to Chester. We're bringing that name back. Oh, Chubby Chester. Chester. No, Chester. Okay, yeah. To look to Chubby Chester for advice. Chubby <laughs> Chubby Chester. It says that in oh, the Boston. Oh, babe, who are you want to talk, my guy? I know. Babe, <laughs> babe Ruth calling someone else Chubby is amazing. Pinch this continued is young babe, to, though. This is young, young babe. babe. Yeah. yeah. I just love that it says babe's curves. It's like, yeah, he had curves. Pinch continued to pull an occasional blank. <laughs> oh, pull an occasional, I don't, I don't know. What? Pull an occasional uh, off, off something about his offense? What? Pinch continued to pull an occasional boner, causing the manager to reconsider catching Ruth himself. Wait, 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 wait. The manager was like... The manager was also like the catcher. So oh, right. He was like, yeah, get out of the way. Let me do this. So anyway, like 1916, like, uh-oh, like Pinch isn't catching Babe well either. But then one game, he throws out Ty Cobb twice. Mm, one game. After, oh, didn't... I mean, didn't Ty Cobb talk to Honus Wagner and find out? Like, I ain't running on this dude. He'll throw me out by a city block, goddammit. <laughs> the 1916 season was uh, Pinch's best year in baseball, along with his partnership with the Babe. When not in the lineup, he warmed up pitchers before games or was on the coaching lines, quote, 
making as much noise as Sea Lion Charlie Hall used to do. You know, Sea Lion. I love, I love on the coaching lines. Like that's C-Lion. like a separate section. He's on. Wow. So this dude was was yeah he was loud, loud before it said a loudmouth scrapper. So oh, yeah. we got more loudmouth scrapping. Okay. okay the 1916 going, yeah. World Series win. Okay, the Red Sox defeated the Brooklyn Robins four games to one, capped their fourth championship season, and their manager announces retirement from baseball. Celebrate. A gang of players, including the Babe, Pinch, Jack Barry, Tilly Walker, and a few others, celebrated with a hunting trip in New Hampshire. Hmm. Besides duck hunting, the outing included a blank between blank and blank refereed by blank. Uh, I'm going to say a wrestling match or a boxing match. A boxing match between Ref- Babe Ruth and first baseman Doc Hoblitzel, refereed by, by Pinch, Pinch <laughs> who wisely ruled the match a draw. Well, what difference does it, what difference are you ruling it? I mean, you're still punching each other. <laughs> so this guy had ample opportunity to change the course of baseball history. Like he, if he lets these two guys like keep going at it in this boxing match. In New Hampshire? He, in New Hampshire, after they win the 1916 World Series, like that's it for Babe, man. Yeah, but there's right. There's a lot of uh, sliding Babe doors uh, with yeah. with with Pinch. A couple more here. Pinch Thomas liked playing in Chicago, and the reason became clear when he secretly blank. He secretly uh, snuck out of his hotel to go do something in Chicago. When he secretly wed cabaret dancer Doxy Emerson Love. <laughs> The Chicago Tribune reported the details of the romance and this wedding held at City Hall. <laughs> a native of San Francisco, Doxy had caught the eye of the Boston backstop and had returned to the Central Inn on Wabash Avenue every time he was in town over the previous two seasons. So he just had the he had the hots for this cabaret dance. He's like, he's like, hey, I'm Babe Ruth's personal catcher. And referee. <laughs> With the 1916 season over, Chet had returned to his farm in Medicine Lodge, Kansas. But finding it lonesome on the prairie in mid-December, he boarded a train from Chicago and immediately proposed to Doxy. She accepted, <laughs> vowing to abandon Chicago's cafe scene and move to Kansas to become a blank's blank. A waitress. A farmer's wife. <laughs> I love the cafe scene. The people in this cafe, she said. Don't know I'm going to quit dancing and go out away west and live with the cows and the chickens. But I know I'm going to like my new life. (laughs) For his part, Pinch said, the folks down in Kansas don't know anything about this, but I know it'll be all right after they see her. So fucking Pinch, in the offseason, is just bored in Kansas with his family, goes up to Chicago, marries a cabaret dancer, brings her home, tells no one in advance. I mean, right. He's like, damn, it's... Kansas is too boring. Also, like Kansas, they won't find out about this. They don't read the newspaper. <laughs> They'll never hear about this. On May 24th, 1917, with the U.S. having joined in the Great War, he registered for the draft. But he was mm-hmm. exempt from service due to his marital status, which, you know, sheds some more light on why he might have married that cabaret oh, dancer. Oh, what? He would never use her like that. My man was playing 5D chess. He saw World <laughs> War II breaking out, and he just found the first cabaret dancer within it, you know. 300 mile radius. Anyway, 1917 isn't good. He ends up actually, a cool thing is he caught the most Babe Ruth starts mm. of anybody. Well, he I was, was going to say, we're getting towards Babe kind of right. not pitching anymore. Uh, there's a very famous story in which uh, the first batter of the game, uh, Babe Ruth walks the guy and 
they get he gets into a fight with the umpire and the umpire tosses him and then pinch Thomas defends him and he gets tossed and then the new pitcher and new catcher throw a no hitter and oh, except wow. for the walk that Babe Ruth <laughs> had to start the game and so he got credit for a combined no no wow that's amazing that's I thought it was going to be the opposite like or or I thought you were going to say like and then Babe and Pinch just like went off and left and went on their own uh, excursion during the game. Anyway, he gets traded to the Philadelphia A's. Uh, it mm. doesn't go well. He blames the sports reporters for quote deflating his worth. He- oh, I love that. That's that's so relatable. <laughs> there are some players that I can definitely say that's still the case. In Philadelphia, the newspaper complained about his antics, calling him a blank blank. Uh, uh, again, a loudmouth scrapper. A rank nuisance. I think rank, rank is like nuisance. a highly ranked, but it makes it seem sound smelly. Like smelly. I was going to say, yeah, which which one is it there? In 1920, Thomas filled in as manager of the team while Tris Speaker accompanied the blank of blank blank home. Oh, he uh, accompanied the president. I don't know. The what? body of Ray Chapman. <laughs> so the manager of the team, Chris Speaker, was friends with the guy who got hit in the head and died. And oh so Pinch and stepped in as team. the manager. He was So sub. he had to leave. And then basically Pinch was like, I got it. I'll Pinch manage. Correct. And then finishing up here, uh, he caught only nine games in 1921 and spent more time on the coaching line where his errorless judgment was said to have preserved many a base runner and his verbal outbursts continued to be an opposing pitcher's nightmare. So this guy was like a legend for just talking shit at opposing pitchers to the point that he was worth having on the roster. (laughs) But then he ends up uh, retiring and joins the movie business where he becomes an assistant director. He appears in some movies, some silent films, and then pinch acting. Yeah. He ends up divorcing his wife. Mm. Uh, She goes to Kansas. He lives in California and then he ends up dying in 1953. This is a really long sentence. Ready? The cause of death was listed as pulmonary edema, amputation of the left leg above the knee due to arteriosclerosis, recurrent infection, gangrene, and peripheral, peripheral vascular disease with the contributory unrelated condition of psychosis. That is on <laughs> the <saber>. unre- <laughs> With the so, unrelated condition. Basically, I think he got a knee infection because they amputated it, and he was also at psychosis. Last unrelated, here, unrelated, unrelated. He is rarely mentioned among catchers, coaches, or other memorable characters Chet Thomas's greatest defender and booster was himself. And once gone, he faded into part of the hidden history of baseball, only to appear from time to time attached to another's story. Let it be less so now. And that, Jordan, is the tale of Chubby Chester, Chatterer Chet, Tom Tommy, the Golden West Retriever, the baseball populace, but of course, Pinch Thomas. A plus, thank you for that journey. Uh, Honestly, I said it earlier, but my takeaway from this is that like, him and babe were like it was working great and then he was gone they got rid of him and babe was like eh, i don't want to pitch anymore it's not as fun to pitch to people that aren't pinch thomas so i'm just gonna i guess i'll just pick up his bat pinch thomas was the first aj ellis <laughs> oh my god that's incredible yeah and they won some world series i mean he was a legend dude. that's incredible all right well thank you for that uh salute pinch thomas <clears throat> let's do one quick email uh before we say goodbye um what a fun pod. This is great. Uh, you can email us at baseballbarbacast at gmail.com. That's B-A-R-B-Cast. We got this email uh, a while back from Will, and we've been wanting to do it for a while just because it's an easy thing that we can uh, laugh and reminisce on. 
Will says, hey, BBQ boys, big fan of the pod. I remember on an old pod, you mentioned your love for minor league baseball, and that was a big part of your baseball fandom growing up. I would love to hear your favorite or most memorable game that you went to. For me, I saw a Vance Worley three-hit shutout in which he also hit a home run for the Reading Phillies. Um, I know you guys asked for a random major leaguer. Obviously, Vance Worley would qualify, but I would also like to sneak in Michael Schwimmer, who was also on that team. Love the pod. Thanks, Will. Will, thank you so much for this email. And Jake, while you think of your answer, I just wanted to say that I found the box score for this game that Will is referring to from July 9th, 2010. And let me tell you, there are some special, special names. The thing that stands out about this game, yes, again, this is a Vance Worley CG shutty in which he hit a home run. This game took two hours and nine minutes. <laughs> this is 10 years before the pitch clock, but that's what it takes. A Vance Worley CG over the Harrisburg Senators in which Danny Espinosa uh, was playing shortstop. Uh, we got Chris Marrero in there. We got, I mean, we got some, just some, Tommy Malone started the game for Harrisburg. So that's one for him. Tuffy Ghost, which was catching Freddie Galvis playing short, of course. But Jake, we have seen many a minor league game together. What are some moments or games that stand out? It is hard to pick just one. We have two, you know, a couple different categories. There's just like funny shit that's happened during games. We've seen great actual games. We've seen great individual performances. What stands out for you? So there's the uh, obviously the, the the story of the time we went to Huntsville, Alabama, and there were about 250 people in a 2020 sorry 20,000 seat stadium where it felt like it's just so abandoned. And the ump made a bad call, and someone in the stands yelled, "Hey, Blue, you're on crack, fuck!" <laughs> and I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. Anytime there's a bad call at my head, I just think. You're on crack. You're on Fuck. crack. Fuck. Yeah, Fuck. No, that that stands out. Um, right. Probably our favorite ump uh, uh, chirp we've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've seen, we've, I remember there was a crazy ending uh, in Hickory with like a play at the plate, like a collision to play at the plate. Yes. I don't remember the details of that one. That one, that was a game with like Nomar Mazzara. Like there were a lot of Rangers prospects in that game. I don't know if you remember I the details of that one. I can tell you the exact date of that game. That date was uh, June 8th, 2014, Jordan. Yes, so that that was a crazy ending that I and, I remember sitting among the scouts and like the pitchers charting and people were getting really pissed about what happened there. I believe it was against West Virginia, um, if I if I recall correctly. So that's a crazy ending. Um, you can pull up the details of that one. I remember well, Jordan, oh yeah, uh, the reason that that game also stands out. Yes, in 2014, is that is when we saw Daniel Bard pitch. Oh, yes. We saw Daniel Bard. This is when he was like maximum yips, was trying to come back. We watched him. I mean, he wasn't throwing a lot of strikes, but he did. Did he get through the inning? I'm not even sure if he got through the inning. Uh, there was no play-by-play of this game that I can find, but oh. he finished with uh, two uh, uh, two outs, no hits, four earned runs, four walks, one strikeout. Yeah. Uh, they, that, so that one, that was a Oh, yeah, here we go. True. I found it. You, you wrote about that. I remember that one. I mean, there's some colleague stuff I remember very well. Um, I remember just like high desert, seeing watching batting practice in high desert is one of my uh, stronger memories um, as one of the most absurd hitter-friendly ballparks I've ever seen. I would also just encourage everyone to go look up where the High Desert Mavericks Stadium is on Google Maps, and then you'll probably understand why they don't play baseball games there. 
um, anymore with all due respect. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of some other, other. I mean, there's a lot of, like, you know, we mentioned our Devers story last week, but in terms of actual games, Actual games that we've seen. Well, I remember Reynaldo Lopez. The time Reynaldo I the Lopez, the time I I Reynaldo the, Lopez the looked like the best pitcher in the world. Um, that's one that stands out. What were you saying? When I got to run the bases. Oh, yes. This was uh, in Bowie. Uh, we, Jake, this was also like 2013, I believe, or 14. They do the kids run the bases after the fact. And Jake was, I guess, still a kid and was wearing shorts, I believe. And you slid into home and like really fucked up your knee. That was <laughs> with like a bunch of like five year olds like trying to like step around you. I'm like um, bleeding on home plate. <laughs> yeah, that was that was very memorable for sure. Um, but yeah, man. I mean, there's there's so many there's there's so many to choose from. I'm sure we we could have done this question more justice. But yeah, when Rowdy Telez, uh, we were interviewing Rowdy Telez, and a fly buzzed mm. by him, and he mm-hmm. snatched it out of the air with his bare hand. Yes, yes. I believe we made a gif of that, which is uh, probably one Threw of our silly, sillier requests uh, ever at MLB. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, there's, 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 there's a ton, there's a ton. And then we've been, we've been lucky to see some, some cool, some cool shit in the minor leagues. And, and, but to, to, to Will's point, like just go to a minor league game and you will see, you will remember those players. You will see guys that you will not think about for a long time until they're in the major leagues or long washed out of the minor leagues. And those memories have stick with me a lot more than most of the major league games I've been to. Like seeing Mitch Haniger make a laser beam throw from right field to third base, that mm-hmm. same you're on crack foot game. That was right. also that same series or that same trip as we saw Chris Bryant homer when he was in the midst of tearing up the Southern League. And we were like, oh, yeah, okay, Chris Bryant. He's pretty, <laughs> who ever heard of that guy? That guy seems like he'll be pretty good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this, this, we've, we've seen a lot of, a lot of stuff. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, uh, but thank you, Will, uh, for that email. We will get some more emails in the coming weeks. Uh, you can email us at baseballbarbacast at gmail.com. That's baseball, B-A-R-B-cast at gmail.com. Uh, any final thoughts, Jake, before we say goodbye? Um, no. Okay. Uh, well, we hope everyone has a uh, lovely uh, start to their week. Happy MLK Day, uh, of course. And uh, we will we will talk to you on Thursday, assuming Carlos Correa doesn't get DFA'd or something weird. Talk to you then. Goodbye. Serious XM Podcasts.